Performing reliably on unseen or shifting data distributions is a difficult challenge for modern vision systems. Even slight corruptions or transformations of images are enough to slash the accuracy of state-of-the-art classifiers. When an adversary is allowed to manipulate or modify an image directly, then models can be manipulated into predicting anything, even when there's no perceptible change. This is known as an adversarial example. The ideal definition of an adversarial example is when two humans consistently say that two pictures are the same, but a machine disagrees. But we can't operationalize that. Therefore, many researchers look at the L2 or the L-infinity distance between two images as a proxy for human evaluation. Hadi Salman is a PhD student at the Madri Lab at MIT. He cut his teeth at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon, at Uber and at Microsoft Research. During his undergrad at the American University of Beirut, Hardy became fascinated with robotics and autonomous systems. What excited him the most was that building such an intelligent system could assist humans in making their lives much easier. Hardy was fascinated by the potential for artificial intelligence to make robots behave increasingly like living things. He realized that robots without a high level of intelligence would always be lacking something critical. After several years of research in robotics, he quickly realized that his passion went beyond applying artificial intelligence to robots. His experience with robots and autonomous vehicles made him aware of some fundamental issues in artificial intelligence, which hinders it from being used reliably in safety critical applications, chief of which is the brittleness of AI models in general, their sensitivity to distribution shift random corruptions and adversarial examples, not even to mention the safety and security concerns that lie therein. Hardy became enmeshed in the pursuit of these problems above all else, and he did some pivotal work with some world-class researchers at Microsoft Research. So what does it mean for a model to be vulnerable to adversarial perturbation? Let's just say that an adversarial perturbation is when an imperceptible change can be made to an image, transmogrifying its predicted class. The robustness of a model has traditionally meant its susceptibility to noise, but it's also been used synonymously for generalization itself. When Hardy was at Microsoft, he came across a couple of papers from his current lab at MIT. The first one was adversarial examples are not bugs, they are features. It presented an entirely new perspective for understanding our data, referred to as the robust features model. A robust feature is one which is anthropocentric or recognizable by humans. In this model, the brittleness of neural networks is justified by the sensitivity of models to highly generalizing and so-called non-robust features of the data, right, which are imperceptible and unrecognizable for humans. The supervised paradigm of machine learning maximizes accuracy alone. It's little wonder that classifiers use all of the information available, even if it's incomprehensible to humans. The MIT researchers showed that it's possible to disentangle the robust 
features from the non-robust features by doing adversarial training or so-called robustification. Robustification is when adversarial examples are found using projected gradient descent. It only finds the smaller magnitude non-robust features because the algorithm is constrained to a small radius around the original sample. So by definition any of the features it finds are the low magnitude or non-robust features. But just because you do adversarial training it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to block all of the adversarial examples. So robustness will always be a matter of degree. Normally classifiers learn both sets of features in tandem but when you isolate them into separate datasets and you train a model on both of them, you'll get a good classifier in both cases. This demonstrates that both of these projections of your data are just two different types of features. It's only when you train on the robust features that you get a robust classifier, which is to say a classifier which is primarily learning human recognizable features. Previously, adversarial examples were seen as aberrations arising from the high dimensional nature of the input space or statistical fluctuations of the training data. This new frame of reference suddenly explained why adversarial examples transferred between models. They were in the data. This conception doesn't explain all adversarial examples. It's still possible to find ones which don't generalize outside of the training data, but why not leave the robust features in there, you might ask? They still carry predictive information, even if imperceptible to humans. Herein lays the tragedy. If you remove all of the non-robust features, your classifier accuracy will drop, but at least there'll be an alignment between what humans recognize and what your model is learning. The second paper which inspired Hardy from the MIT lab was Adversarial Robustness as a Prior for Learned Representations, which demonstrated that adversarial robustness leads to more human perception-aligned feature representations. Robust optimization can actually be viewed as inducing a human prior over the features that the models are able to learn. So in that paper there was a really interesting experiment where they trained a robust network on robust features and a non-robust network on non-robust features. They then put in either an input image or just a, a random seed image and then they ran projected gradient descent to maximally um, activate a given output class back into the original image. And you can see that on the robust network the kind of shapes that are emerging are quite high level. They're quite human recognizable. We have something that looks quite frog-like in the top left here and quite crab-like. Whereas on the non-robust features, we're just seeing noise. These are imperceptible to humans. And when the dog was used as a seed image, you're still seeing the dog kind of bleeding through um, into the optimized image. So as you can see, these just seem like two completely orthogonal sets of features, but Annoyingly for us, the non-robust features below are highly generalizing and are being learned by neural networks in their default configuration. It's a fairly empirical method that they use trying to ascertain whether an image is human recognizable or anthropocentric to a certain extent. But yeah, it's, it's quite clear though that the more robust the network, the more it produces human interpretable visualizations, larger shapes, and configurations of objects rather than these fine-grained or ostensibly noisy patterns. Do you remember Whelan Brendel, who we had on the show recently? 
He was involved in that texture bias paper showing that CNNs are strongly biased towards recognizing textures rather than shapes. He claimed that if you have a robust network, then they're not sensitive to the textures anymore and are more likely to be aligned to the features that humans pay attention to. So all of this work inspired Hardy to start thinking about how the fruits of the adversarial robustness community could be leveraged beyond security. Hardy published work showing that using adversarial robustness as a prior for training during ImageNet models actually led to better transfer learning to a wide range of downstream tasks. A few months later, Hardy had a huge realization. The phenomenon of adversarial examples can actually be turned upside down to lead to more robust models instead of breaking them. Hardy actually utilized the brittleness of neural networks to design unadversarial examples or robust objects, which are objects designed specifically to be robustly recognized by neural networks. This work led to Hardy publishing the paper Unadversarial Examples Designing Objects for Robust Vision, which basically answers the question, why are we trying so hard to make neural networks robustly recognize objects? Why don't we turn this thing upside down and instead optimize our objects to be robustly recognized by neural networks? How can we build objects that are easily detectable by machine learning models? Instead of optimizing images to mislead the models, as is the case in traditional adversarial examples, we can instead alter the inputs to reinforce the correct behavior, yielding unadversarial examples. Consider how adversarial examples work. We maximize the loss of a machine learning model given the correct label with respect to the input image by solving a simple projected gradient descent formulation finding permissible but small perturbations on the input image. To make this work for unadversarial examples, all we need to do is change the max to a min. We can do this on entire images, but to make it even more realistic, we can work with patches or even textures on the objects inside the image. This works brilliantly in settings where the user not only has control on the models that they're deploying, but also on the objects of interest that they're trying to recognize track or detect. We already do this in the real world, right? Just think about helicopter landing pads or runways or stop signs. These are things that have been designed to perceptually activate our own human perception as much as possible. And it turns out that we can do the same thing for machines. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed the episode today. We've had so much fun making it. Remember to like, comment and subscribe. We love reading your comments. And we'll see you back for some quantum natural language processing next week. Check out me hat. What the hell is that? Oh, nice. <laughs> Look, it has my pronouns. Excellence. <laughs> Conflating pronouns with editors. There is a secret. It has the tweets that got me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast with my two compadres, Syak, the neural network pruner pool, and Dr. Yannick Lightspeed Kilcher. Now, in today's show, we are joined by Hardy Salman. Hardy pursued a double major in mathematics and mechanical engineering at the American University of Beirut. 
He obtained a master's in robotics from Carnegie Mellon under the tutelage of the legendary professor Howie Chossett, where he applied machine learning in tumor localization and surgical robots. He also applied deep reinforcement learning for robot navigation. Hardy interned at Uber, where he worked at the intersection of machine learning and uncertainty quantification for autonomous driving. And he also got accepted into Microsoft's AI residency program in 2018, which is really prestigious, actually. I think only about 10 people uh, got accepted from literally thousands of applicants. So uh, he spent two and a half years at MSR as a research engineer working on adversarial robustness for neural networks. And whilst he was there, he published a convex relaxation barrier to tight robustness verification of neural networks. And this work was a layer-wise convex relaxation framework that unified all the previous LP relaxed neural network verifiers. I, th I think LP means linear programming, by the way, um, in primal and dual spaces. He also published provably robust deep learning via adversarially trained smoothed classifiers, which improved the performance of randomized smoothing and is now one of the few scalable and certified defenses against LP bounded or finite dimensional adversarial examples. This work achieved SOTA accuracy on ImageNet and on CIFAR 10. He also released the paper Denoised Smoothing, a provable defense for pre-trained classifiers where he developed a method for provably defending any pre-trained image classifier against finite dimensional adversarial attacks. At the end of last year, Hadi published Unadversarial Examples, Designing Objects for Robust Vision. Hadi realized that the phenomenon of adversarial examples can actually be reversed to lead to more robust models instead of breaking these models. Hardy utilized the brittleness of neural networks to design robust objects or unadversarial examples. He also published, do adversarially robust ImageNet models transfer better at the end of last year? Um, robust base models for transfer learning might actually have sl you know, slightly lower accuracy, but they transfer better for downstream tasks. Robustness leads to better feature representations. Recently, Hardy joined the MIT Madri Lab as a PhD student, where he's developing techniques for efficient, reliable, and safe deployment of machine learning models in the real world. And today, Hardy is going to tell us all about his work on adversarial robustness beyond security. Anyway, uh, Hardy, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Tell us about your eureka moment with unadversarial examples. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. This is a great show, and I'm happy to be here. Um, and thanks for the great introduction. So yeah, like adversary examples are, are amazing as a phenomenon. It, it always actually like surprised me like and got me really excited. I remember attending a talk like uh, by, uh, by one of like Facebook AI researchers, uh, uh, Facebook AI research uh, researchers which gave it, which, which he gave it at CMU and he kind of talked about, I forgot his name to be honest, <laughs> but uh, he gave it, he gave a talk at CMU and he introduced adversary examples and I was really, really impressed. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like, this is nice. Like. Like how, how can, you know, those, you know, very easy, easily crafted examples, you know, break, break such like really, really well working models. Like, you know, they work in like in very high dimensional space. You start, you just perturb your image slightly and you suddenly break the model. It's really impressive. And, you know, this got me to like, you know, to, to realize like, you know, like our, our current models, they work really well, you know, uh, in the average case, but on the worst, in the worst case scenario, they, they just like, you know, suck. It's very, very easy. I can't imagine how easy it is to like break the, these models. So it's clear that you know, like uh, our current uh, you know machine learning models are way, um, you know, like way far from being uh, robust and reliable in a way that we want them to be. 
when we deploy them, and especially in specific critical applications. So, so for me, the risk example is really like kind of like from a security perspective, it's really like uh, an important problem. Although people like some people think that you know uh, there are more more problems that you know like there are worse problems than adversary examples currently that we should focus on, which I agree with. But still, adversary examples is definitely like at least in the future, it's going to be like something we have to deal with, and uh, currently also we have to deal with as well. Um, so from a security perspective, you know, I've, uh, I've done I've done some work as you mentioned uh, on adversary examples, uh, and it's really exciting. It, like the nice thing about it is that it's really challenging. Like like there's literally like it's easy to attack. You know, there are many many attacks. All of them work amazing, but it's very very difficult to defend against these attacks. Like it's it's like it's insanely difficult. Even on on small on small data sets like CFR10, we cannot achieve like you know above like sixty. 67% accuracy on like some even like you know small LP perturbations. It's just like insane how 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 difficult it is to defend. Um, and uh, how about certifiably defend as well, like with guarantees that even becomes harder and harder. And whenever you try to defend, the problem is like whenever you're trying to defend against these things, you lose accuracy as well. You lose you lose standard performance. So every single defense that we have right now, it doesn't even like you know achieve like you know the robustness level that we want. But in addition to that, you know, it suffers from, you know, bad accuracy. And also sometimes, like, if you're using randomized smoothing or something, it's practically difficult as well, because you need, like, 100,000 samples at inference time to, like, get some certificate. So, like, some, some certificate of robustness, which is clearly, like, not, like, not, not very practical. So, like, you know, not being, uh, requiring a lot of samples sometimes uh, because of, you know, it's randomized nature uh, of the algorithm, basically, and... Uh, deteriorating basically the standard performance all of these things you know come together and you know it's it's very far from being practically practically usable at this point in addition to of course not being that robust that we want but still open problem i'm super excited i'm working on it all the time in fact we are working on so like in, in a couple of months we're, we will have like something that like probably the, the the first so we will have like a really really good defense against adversarial patches which is practical and to be honest i feel this is the first time it's going to be like People will think actually, yeah, let's probably deploy this model. To be honest, like, I'm very, very excited about this work. And in a couple of months, hopefully, like in our lab, we are working on this. Super exciting. And yeah, I can't wait to like, you know, open source it and like tell the people about it. But I'm very I'm very optimistic about this. So it's specifically for adversarial patches. It's really amazing. And the first time, you know, like the first time I think like the practical defense uh, can can go out there and like you know, people think because it's like it doesn't it's very fast, it doesn't deteriorate standard performance, and that's it achieves remarkable. Um, robustness against adversary patches on ImageNet scale. So it's, it's really impressive, uh, I feel, and promising. So uh, we are working on it, and they are preparing it, you know, really well. So I'm very excited for that. But uh, but yeah, like, most most of the work on robustness have been, you know, and adversary examples have been, like, on security applications, which is kind of makes sense, right? Like, it's the first, first kind of, like, you know, uh, obvious or, like, direct application. Uh, uh, or di di direct, you know, like, yeah, direct kind of like application where adversary examples, you know, like hurt the system. So it makes sense to work on it from a security perspective, but also like there's ha there have been, you know, a bunch of works uh, uh, that, that discussed, you know, robustness and adversary robustness beyond security. Like the nice thing about adversary examples, in addition that, to that, you know, it's easy, like it's, 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 it's an impressive phen phenomenon because it's bra it breaks your model easily, you know, small perturbations breaks the model. This adversary example, uh, these adversary examples have actually gives, uh, given us insights about our models. It turns out, you know, like if you actually, you know, do adversarial training to block these adversary examples, you're kind of adding a prior on your model 
which actually makes it learn a really, really robust and nice representation that hasn't learned it before. A more human-aligned representation that 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 basically aligns more with uh, aligns more with how humans per- perceive perceive basically the world, uh, roughly speaking. So it's really like it's really it's really like a nice prior. And in addition to like you know being something that hurts uh, our secure, our models, it actually can benefit. Like th- those insights that we achieve that we get from adversarial robustness, uh, like are really really essential for like learn. Uh, uh, learning representations and other topics that we actually care about in uh, in machine learning, and I think like in, in this chat we're gonna focus about like you know two two applications that 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 actually improve the performance of an, of actual systems in the real world by which and 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 whose insights were brought from adversary examples basically. So you know we we look at whatever we we did for adversary examples, we learn from it, we we get some insights, and we solve other other tasks and and like apply it to other applications. Which I found really, uh, really, really exciting. And uh, as you mentioned, like those applications, you know, include designing an adversarial examples, um, which basically reverses the story, as you said, of adversarial examples. So instead of like breaking a model by generating adversarial examples, you actually design the world in a way that the neural networks can perceive it much, much, much nicer and much better. So basically, you add features to your objects. You add features that neural networks like and really, really, you know, uh, grasp on. And I guess we'll get like into these uh, these these the, the, these details later on. I guess uh, in the chat. But uh, but yeah, uh, uh, examples I think like were um, were key for for me to like get into it, you know to, to like to, like to to get fundamentally into like machine learning and like start actually doing re- really good work. Like when I when I joined Microsoft, I remember. So I didn't do any any you know research on adversary examples before before joining Microsoft's AI residency. So when I joined Microsoft, uh, I remember that. So so there, like you know, you join an AI residency, you have to choose some 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 project to work on, some set of people to work on. Really exciting! It's like you can work on on anything you want. Uh, you know, so you have you have Microsoft and all the Microsoft resources and all the Microsoft people. You can choose whatever whoever you want to work on with. So. I felt really, really well. Like I, w- I wanted to take that opportunity to actually get into something that's re- that's really impactful and people care about. And you know, it's 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 actually you know like not easy. Like it's it's very um, you know uh, challenging. And uh, you know, it was in the middle of the hype of like you know adversarial robustness and adversarial examples and many attacks. Like every day there's an attack. Every day there's 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 a defense. So it's really exciting. Uh, so I I was I was like that's it. I want to get into this. I want to like start. You know start like i want to find the best as everyone starts i want to i want to solve this problem <laughs> i want to you know build the best defense <laughs> i'm going to stop adversary examples so i started working you know uh reading reading a lot of papers uh subscribing to like google scholar to like get every single <laughs> to read every single attack and defense which is impossible <laughs> so i stopped doing that but uh but yeah so i started like digging hard on like seeing what 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 problems like current defenses have what problems current certified defenses have and then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, we published the first uh, paper on like convex relaxation, which tried basically to like, uh, so which is basically uh, along, uh, uh, um, which is basically on uh, neural network verification or certification. So we found we, we found that you know, so there's adversary examples. It's, it's a problem. People try to defend against it in an empirical way or in a certified way. So empirically, there there's basically there there's billion ways. That people have tried, but like nothing works more than like you know doing adversarial training. Probably that's like the most effective way. Just like you know, 
train on adversary examples. And it works decently, but not as much as, as good as we want. Well, and there's a lot of variants of it, and you'll find them with the, in different names, but like they're essentially all um, doing, doing similar things. And there's also certified defenses, which gives you robustness guarantees. So you have guarantees that your model is robust. So, so something that we found is that there's like 20 papers on certified defenses, which do convex relaxation of, of neural networks, specifically ReLU networks. And they try to like, you know, push the bounds, push the, push the certificates that they, that they get. But they are also kind of essentially the same. Like they are doing similar things, a bit of heuristics to like do the relaxation better. So what we did is that we just unified all of these in one framework and we sold this framework to optimality. So like we actually found, you know, like the best bounds, this, this, this neural network, this, 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 uh, this relaxation uh, problem actually uh, can get. And why that's a problem? It's, it's, it was a problem because it requires so much compute. Like I remember we did like 150 years of CPU compute or something. That's why people didn't actually solve the optimal problem there. So we, we unified everything in one framework. We solved the optimal problem and we showed that the optimal problem is actually really, really bad. Like it doesn't, it doesn't give you much, like it doesn't actually close, this, close the gap with like exact verifiers such as mixed integer programming verifiers, for example, on even simple problems. So like why, like, so, so, so we, we basically had like one simple message, like if you want to do relaxation, just like do more than layer-wise convex relaxation, because if you do layer-wise convex relaxations with some approximations, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get mu like much from it. So that was, you know, like an uh, interesting paper and like people liked it apparently. Uh, so I was, I was very excited, very happy because, you know, people started, you know, talking about it, you know, you like, you put it on archive, you, you open source the code, uh, you, you, you tweet about it and then people start interacting. This is the best moment, like of of of, of the research, uh, uh, of of the research kind of point, like life of a student or like of a researcher, I guess. At least for me, I, I get very excited, like you know, when, when I, I'm very excited, like the day before I want to like tweet and announce the open and open source the the work. I'm super excited. Um, so yeah, that was that was really nice, and people liked it. I was very happy, and it was kind of a step for me, like. I was always like, you know, I have nothing in this field. I want to do something like I am like, you know, I have nothing. I, have, I haven't done anything in this field. So this was like, this was like the, the first step for me to like get into this field. And immediately after we published this paper, uh, randomized smoothing came out, you know, like it was like came out like two weeks before we published this paper or something like that. And, and it sounded like, you know, like a very scalable method and that that's actually promising. That, that's a promising direction in certified defenses to defense, to defend against adversarial examples. So it's the first, it's probably the first work that actually scales to ImageNet. And it's really, really like, you know, theoretically, theoretically really well motivated and really nice, like has nice, nice theoretical kind of foundations. Um, so I worked with a bunch of like theoretical computer scientists at Microsoft and uh, researchers. Like it was actually a really nice problem to work on. And what we did there is that we basically tried to like improve, uh, not the actual certification, but try to train models that are best that are better for this method for this certification method. So what we did is that essentially like how randomized smoothing works is that you train a model to be able to classify well under Gaussian noise. And then you pass and you for if you want to like certify an image, you replicate it like n times, I don't know, hundred or thousand times, you add random noise to it, random Gaussian noise to each to each sample, you pass them through the network, and then you take the majority vote on that. And also you can like do something else also like to, to get some, some certificate of robustness, like how, how, uh, like what's the radius of your L2 ball in which you are robust. 
So what we did is that we kind of trained, figured out a way to train a mo the model that we use for you know smoothing or for randomized smoothing in a better way. So we, so we basically employed adversarial training to optimize the right objective. So that the, the, the cool thing there is that we kind of approximated the actual objective of the smooth classifier. So now we are not actually certifying the actual classifier. There's another classifier which is wrapped around this new classifier, which does this process of randomized smoothing. So passes in uh, random noisy images or, or no noisy images basically of your current image, passes them through a network many, many, many times, takes the majority vote of these. So this, this kind of like uh, a process is a new classifier. Um, so essentially, to, 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 what we wanted is that to, to be able to like find what the right noise that we want to add so that we get the best kind of model for such process. So we did basically adversarial training, but on the objective of this smooth classifier. So that was the contribution there, like, you know, uh, attacking the smooth classifier to find adversarial examples for the smooth classifier and train on these. And it boosts the results really, really a lot. And also people liked it, so I was very, very excited. So like, you know, two, two papers after each other and people like them, I was super excited. Like, uh, like, I think these are the two papers that, you know, got me more confident and like, you know, uh, more, more kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, excited to like continue working and like, you know, uh, like search more and do more stuff on how, how, uh, how to improve, you know, robustness of neural networks. And uh, yeah, so these, are, these were the first two papers. I did them during the AI residency. And then I switched to be a research engineer uh, at Microsoft and then continued working on, this, on, these, on these topics. So I collaborated with uh, a bunch of people. So I collaborated with Zico Coulter from CMU and uh, Alexander Madri from MIT, who is my advisor right now. Um, uh, like those, those were kind of like the two of the leaders of, in this field. So I just like kind of reached out to them and I was like, yeah, I have this good idea. Do you want to collaborate or something like that? And they're like, they're, they were really, really open to it. So I was very excited. Like, it's really exciting, like how you can easily, you know, reach to people and like start collaborations. And like, I, I, I actually like doing that a lot. Like, it's really nice. Like you just reach out to them and they are really nice people in general. So like at least Zico and Alexander are, are amazing. Both of them, like they're re they were really, really nice and easy, easily approachable. So I just reached out to them and discussed, started discussing with them, met them at New Europe. So I remember as well when I presented these two works, um, it was really, really exciting. So I started then like working with Zico on like this denoised smoothing paper. Uh, and let me know guys, if you want to like, if I should stop or not, I'm just like saying everything. I'm telling the story of my life. No, it's fine. Carry on. Sounds good. All right, let's do it. So, so yeah, I, I, I joined, I, I basically, you know, I remember I discussed like in New Year's 2019, I met Zico like after, after a tutorial he, he gave or like a talk he gave or something. And we, I, I don't know, I, I got this idea of like, you know, why don't we, I, I was discussing with him and, you know, we, 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 we thought like, why don't we, like, like it's, it, we, we were actually trying to like think of ways to improve. So basically the, the original randomized smoothing paper came from his lab. And then, you know, uh, uh, me and like some researchers at Microsoft, you know, improved it uh, or, you know, presented this work on like how to train it better. So we were thinking how we can push it more because it seemed like probably the only method that can scale. Like, how can we push it more and more? So we were thinking that, all right, so like our models, uh, all right, the mice smoothing really depends on like being able to like classify well under, under Gaussian noise, right? So why don't we kind of like ha add a pre-processing step to our inputs before passing them to a classifier? So we were trying to like append a denoiser, denoiser to a classifier and 
train basically these end-to-end to figure out like can we actually improve randomized smoothing and it turned out that it doesn't help at all you know you are just like you know adding your you're just like enlarging your model but like it's not really it's not really helping helping a lot so while doing that we were like oh, sh- oh sh-. like what if we just like fix the classifier and like you know train the denoiser so like what if we have a classifier that's fixed pre-trained black box what if we fix it and we just append a denoiser or train a pre- like some denoiser and fix like prepended before this classifier and then like do randomized smoothing on this whole new classifier does it actually work and it turns out that it actually works really well and why is this interesting is that okay randomized smoothing is amazing and it's probably one of the it's not yet where, where we want it to be of course but it's one of the only methods that work and so 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 like obviously like we want we have to think about how to apply it eventually how to apply it to actual you know like real world problems so imagine you have you know you're using uh, Google's or Microsoft's or any off-the-shelf image classification API, and you want to, instead of querying it for predictions, and, and, and Google and Microsoft, let's say, they are lazy to deploy their own certified defenses because it doesn't really work well so far. So what if you want actually to obtain some certificates from those, mo- like from those models? You can literally just wrap these models, which are black box. You don't know anything about them. You can append, basically, you, you can like append a denoiser before them in this process of like querying. And then just like pass a bunch of noisy images of your current image of interest that you want to certify, and then get the prediction, pass them through the denoise. So add noise, pass it through your denoiser, then pass it through the API, get a bunch of predictions, take the majority vote of Z, votes of these, and that's it. You have a, like you have an you have you have a, you have a prediction that's that that comes with a certificate as well. So you can pass. You can also like the output that you get. You can take the majority vote to get the prediction, and you can also like you know, calculate, calculate the actual certificate that you get, like how robust the model is around this data point that you are passing. That was really, really exciting. Like, so we did it like for, we, we, we certified like uh, Google's API, Microsoft Azure's API, uh, Clarify API and the AWS API. Like it was actually really cool to just like, you know, go there, just like try to see, see how, like how robust these models are without, you know, doing this process and then how more robust they become after you doing this process. So that was really, really cool. And we we published this at at New Europe's as well, 2020, uh, I think, yeah. And uh, people liked it as well, so <laughs> I'm excited. So so I like like when people like like I really I really invest time like writing papers like a lot of time like like in our lab and in my previous at, at Microsoft as well and more more specifically in, in in our current lab like we invest a lot of time in like writing papers and like making sure the code is really smooth and runs and like replicable and write a blog post. Like we don't open source anything without like a code blog post so that people, you know, is like, are easy like to, 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 to like, to, to like see the work, like it. Cause like, there's like so much noise. There's like billion papers a day in machine learning. So if your paper is not like really well done, like first of all, the problem has to be like, you know, well-motivated. The writing has to be really, really nice because people are lazy to read. Like if I, if I start reading a paper and like, I don't understand what's going on and like you know it's not well written i'm like people are lazy by nature they're not gonna like continue writing most probably uh, reading most probably so as long as you don't like you know feed it to them like very easily they're not gonna like there's billion things like I, they will they'll say oh let me continue working on my code like whatever i'm, I'm doing but like unless it's like really well written with a blog post with like easily you know people like when they understand stuff that's my that's my understanding like when they people you know, you know when you tell something about people and they understand it they like it and they get motivated and they, then they start following your work and like 
uh, hopefully building on top of it so that we, uh, you know, improve the state of the art of like uh, AI and like science in general. So like, I feel this is really nice, something nice about machine learning that, you know, people try to like, you know, make things replicable and, and you know, easily, easily doable. And like, you don't see like very complicated papers. You, you see chunks of papers, which is really nice actually. And uh, so, yeah. In, in short, like I try to like spend so much time on to to like make the papers really really well, uh, well written. So I so so of course I feel sad <laughs> if after this all work, you know, people <laughs> don't like like it or like you know, I don't know if it doesn't you know get a lot of attention. It feels a little bit sad, but it's fine. Like it's worth it. Some, at least you see you feel you know you have uh, um, you have done you know your part, and then it's up to people to like it or not or to appreciate it uh, or you know. But like. I really spend time also like choosing what problems to work on because there's many, many problems you can work on. So I spend time optimizing because any problem you get into, if it's tiny or if it's big, it's gonna take you a few months to like write the paper, write the code, etc. So you better spend this time on like problems. Like you better spend like two weeks thinking, not doing anything, and then like start actually, you know, like working on the problem, then like starting immediately on a very tiny idea that you get, which might not, you know, be that impactful. Because anyway, it's gonna take like three months, four months from you to like write the paper, you know, write the code, etc. If you want to do it well, of course. Uh, if you don't want to do it well, it's easy. <laughs> you can just like write it overnight. But uh, but yeah, it's it's exciting when people, you know, uh, like the work uh, and you know appreciate it and start interacting with it and building on top of it. It's really satisfying for researcher, at least for me. I don't know for everyone, but like at least for me, it's very very satisfying. So after this, um, all right. So I think this is probably. The, yeah so after this i so i i don't know how things were ha happened exactly but like uh we started i started like collaborating you know uh, like me and some researchers at microsoft started collaborating with alexander madri as well so we were starting discuss discussing like we wanted like to actually you know like uh see like where where we can where we can go also like with the robustness and it it, it was after you know this adversary robustness uh like features are not bugs you know uh sorry like uh uh, address examples are not bugs; they are features. Uh, paper so it was really inspiring, and it came up. With, it came out with like two other papers, which like show that you, you can actually use robustness and, and to, to do to do other tasks. So this was really really inspiring for me, and uh, it was really amazing, well written, uh, like really nice experiments, nice motivating. I, I think there like the crucial thing is that like the set of experiments that delivered this idea uh, uh, was really nice, really really nice. So I started thinking like how 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 we can push forward like I don't know how like how I start thinking about stuff but like I don't know exactly how I what I did exactly but like I started thinking like how can we push this more how can what like is this at all like what what does it mean that there is no non robust features robust features what can we do with these what does it mean that you know uh, if you train with adversarial training you get you know a nice representation so like if it's nice looking yes but like so what like what what happens um so, so, so we got this idea of like, okay, so it's we, we when we actually do adversarial training, we we are kind of like blocking these non-robust features and keeping those robust features, right? So, like in the in the robust features model, there like every feature representation is like is divided into like robust and non-robust features. So, by doing adversarial training, you are kind of like masking the non-robust features, keeping the robust features only, right? And when you do that, you get like nice nice representations in the sense that, so. A direct application for that was like, what does like, okay, a very important place where we care about feature representation is like for transfer learning. We basically have, you know, those source models that we train on large data sets 
And we have some small tasks where we do not have much data or compute. And we want to basically transfer the knowledge that we learned on log those huge tasks, such as ImageNet, for example, or other, other more larger tasks. And we want to transfer, train models there, transfer them to work on very quickly on those small tasks. Imagine you are working in a company, you, have, you are doing grasping or something, and you have like your own data set of like, I don't know, a thousand images. And you want to create a model in that. Good luck training from scratch. So it's better like that you uh, bootstrap your model by starting from pre-trained pre -trained model and then fine-tune that on your small data set. What decides how well you're going to do, one thing that decides how well you're, you're going to do is the quality of the features that you're transferring over. So really, you know, um, the features that your source model learn are crucial because you're transferring them basically and then fine-tuning on the, on, the, on the target model. Um, but what does, like, what does, so we were thinking, like, what does, like, how, how do we decide what these features are? And in general, these features are di dictated by what priors we use or add to the training process when we actually, you know, are training. So this, this includes the losses we use, the regularizers we use. Like, if you, if you do some regularizer, you are actually, you know, adding some, like, inductive bias. And you're biasing the model to, like, you know, prefer, like, to, 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 to kind of, like, eliminate some... Some 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 weird things that he does that it doesn't have to learn and learn some other stuff. Uh, this includes also like you know any data augmentation you do, uh, well, the optimizers you use, anything basically that you actually like choices that you do during training, uh, adds some bias, you know, like and 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 shapes your features basically, you know. So your features that you learn basically depends on what priors you add. So we're thinking, okay, what happens if we do adversary robustness? So this is an additional prior, right? Like we, you are you are you are forcing the model. Basically, if given two images that are very visually similar, you want it to output the same predictions. So those images were basically can be basically shifted by some non-robust features, which are the adversarial examples or like that the adversarial perturbations. But both of them, you want them to be predicted similarly by the network, which is something you know that makes sense. Like we want our models, if given two visually similar images, to output the same thing. Uh, so we were thinking, like, what happens if we add this robustness prior? So what we did is we did it. Like we started training, we trained a bunch of ImageNet robust models, robust ImageNet models, and standard ImageNet models. Then we transferred the representations learned to 12 different image classification tasks. But before going there, actually, like there was there was some conflicting evidence of like why this this might might not actually work because like whenever we train with robust training, we actually deteriorate the standard performance of the model. And there is a paper by Google by Kornbluth et al. that showed that. In order to get better transfer learning, your source models have to be better. So better ImageNet models transfer better. So they showed that there is a correlation with how well your ImageNet model is achieving on ImageNet with how well it's going to transfer to a wide range of, trans of, 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 of downstream tasks. So this was, okay, okay. We were, we were like, okay, damn it. Then this might not probably work because our robust models have lower accuracies. But let's try it anyway, you know? Let's see, maybe, maybe, maybe we will find something interesting. And indeed, it was interesting that, you know, those robust models, when we transfer them, although they have lower accuracies than the standard models, they transfer better consistently on a wide range of tasks. Not only image classification, but also object detection and instance segmentation. It was really surprising, really nice, really clean, really like, you know, direct. Like, I like when, I like when, 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 when these results, they come, you know, the idea is very simple, etc. The, the results just flow immediately. You don't have to do any hacks, anything. Just like, you know, it works. I love when this happens. Like, it's really satisfying as well for me. So, so, so yeah, we just trained a bunch of robust models, bunch of non-robust uh, standard models, 
the robust models transfer better. So we started thinking, why this is the case? Like, is that conflicting evidence? Like, what's going on? Like, what we are we have lower accuracies? How, how like what happens with the Google paper? Like, you know, what did they find there? So we actually dig more, and we found that in in it, it, it actually is the, like of course the Google paper is correct. Like, you know, uh, we find that we are not like you know we didn't say that it's not correct, but we started wanted to, to understand what's going on. Uh, so we found that both robustness and accuracy uh, are important. So if at a fixed robustness level, if you increase the accuracy of the model, you improve transfer learning. So what we what we got is basically kind of like a, 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 a correlation curve between ImageNet accuracy and transfer accuracy that's basically higher than the standard model for robust models. So what what essentially that means that is that if you improve the robustness, all the shift all all the kind of like transfer like transfer learning curve that basically relates you know how large the model is or how well it's performing on ImageNet and how well it's going to transfer shifts up. Um, so it was really really exciting. So just for best transfer, so, 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 so for best transfer learning performance, you need both trans robustness and accuracy. So if you fix robustness level and increase accuracy, you increase performance. So it's so so what the paper, what the Google paper found is that at a robustness level of zero, basically, if you fix, if you improve, in, uh, so so that paper should be basically better ImageNet models transfer better at a fixed robustness level or something like that. So like if you fix the robustness level, you improve the mo ImageNet model. Yes, it transfers better, but that's like, that's kind of like for a fixed robustness, a robustness level. If you improve robustness, it will it, even if the accuracy is lower, it might transfer better. But uh, and and that paper got an oral actually at like New Europe's. I was super excited. Like this was you know like one of one of my previous papers. You know the the, the randomized smoothing one got a spotlight. So it was my second paper in this field. So I was very excited as well. Like I was super super excited then. But like the oral one, I was like, damn it! Like that's amazing. I was like I was like in Redmond, of course at home. You know. Enjoying the pandemic from home, uh, and suddenly you know I received this email. It was really, really amazing. I was like, "Oh shit!" Okay, like that. Okay, my goal—not my goal, but like I would like to eventually to get some best paper award or something. But like getting an oral before starting my PhD was like amazing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, "Okay, this is great." Uh, so I was very, very, very excited. I don't know people. Some people don't care about like you know, awards and stuff, but me, at least as a young researcher, you know, just starting, this motivates me a lot. Like you know. It's in addition to like what people appreciate how impactful the work is. It actually gets like you know some nice award like you no know, uh, appreciation at the conference. It's 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 really nice. Uh, I know this doesn't matter a lot. Maybe like you know it's just like a tie like something like. But at least for me, it motivates me. And that's what's important for me. So 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 that's good. Uh, so yeah, people liked it as well. Super exciting. Uh, can I can I maybe jump in here uh, uh, for for a moment? Of course. And yeah. and talk about this it, because it this is it's very interesting, right? The fact that you get more robust models and they transfer better. And um, so, you know, on one hand, you can make the argument that the representation of robust models is better just be because of the fact of how we train them. But isn't it also the case that this might be an effect of how we define what transfer learning is? Because in transfer learning, you know, we... We, we define the objectives for transfer learning, which means that, you know, we as humans, we think these two tasks are somewhat close, right? Like these are medical images, these are ImageNet images, right? To make the determination which tasks are even considered transfer learning tasks, we use our human assessment of the data, which is exactly the, what you would call 
a robust features, right? So to even make mm -hmm. the determination of which tasks are transfer learning tasks, we use robust features. And when you train robust models, you exactly train them to be responsive to robust features. So what I would have mm -hmm. maybe as a bit of a challenge hypothesis is that maybe these models don't actually transfer better to any transfer learning task, but only to the transfer learning tasks that we as humans consider uh, to be transfer learning tasks. There might be, there might be other tasks to which the non-robust models transfer much better, but we just don't, we don't know because we never try. Like, okay, here I have my malware detection data set. How am I supposed to know that my ImageNet model is going to transfer really well? I just don't get the idea, right? Because I'm a human. So is, uh, is, yeah. is, this, is this kind of a, this is, seems like a bit of a circular loop of how we define the task and then, you know, how we solve it. I mean, it's cool, but yeah, no, this is, this is... Is it not an anti-pattern? Because why would I use an ImageNet model for a malware classification task? Because it's effectively going to result into negative transfer, right? Because the overlap between my source dataset and target dataset is roughly very sparse. But that's so, what you're saying, right? Um, that, that's what you think. What I'm, no, 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 I, I, of yeah. course, of course, you're right, you're right. Like, uh, I'm, I'm more making kind of an esoteric point that, you know, there... Essentially, and I agree, I agree with you, Hadi, this paper, like the features, not bugs paper, I consider like a landmark paper in, in the literature of adversarial examples. It, it clearly, like it, the experiments are very convincing about the fact that, you know, that the data contains features that to us humans seem like, yeah, those are features, right? Like shape and whatnot, but they also r contain features that we don't care about as humans, but they're still features. Mm -hmm. And now what I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, when we as humans come up with a transfer learning task, we say, look, these two things have much overlap. And we do this on the basis of robust features. However, there might be, there might be two tasks that we as humans think have no overlap, like the malware thing. So as a human, we think, now what do they have in common? But right? It could be that they share the same uh, non-robust features. Yeah, no, I, I actually I actually totally, like, this is a great point to be honest. Okay, there's a bunch of things here that I want to discuss. It's actually really, really a subtle point. In fact, like, very recently, there's a paper that came out that showed that actually this correlation doesn't happen if you transfer from ImageNet to, like, ChexNet. So, you know, medical image, it doesn't, it probably doesn't have any overlap. It's just using, like, some, like, weird features that, you know, that are not existent. Maybe they're existent in ImageNet as non-robust features, but like as robust features, as for humans, nothing overlaps, you know. But maybe, maybe, maybe it, there are some non-robust features which transfer, and which is which is great. And that's why probably you see a little bit of improvement from ImageNet to uh, ChexNet. But this correlation and this this hasn't been done on robust. Like if you train if you transfer a robust model to ChexNet. So pro I actually was planning to try that to be honest. Like I was planning to like see because after this like. Someone tweeted about it, like, uh, the I forget, I'm bad at names, oh my god, I forget. And someone tweeted about this paper about, like, transferring from ImageNet to, to, to ChexNet. And they show that, you know, this Google paper doesn't hold. Like, if you actually improve ImageNet model, you know, on ImageNet, it doesn't transfer better for ChexNet. They all, they all roughly get the same performance. So you are just, like, you know, transferring some minimal, minimal knowledge there. 
So personally, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't tend to like, uh, I mean, people, you know, whenever they do medical imaging, they just start from ImageNet pre-training. I don't know why, but like, it doesn't help that much. It helps a little bit. And this correlation doesn't hold. But I totally agree. You might actually, you know, uh, trans try to transfer a robust model and it doesn't improve better than standard models. Maybe if it's worse, I don't know. But I, I, I was actually trying to try that. But regarding this point of like, what 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 like what what's transferring like this there are robust and robust features like what's going on i don't know exactly what i don't know the exact answer to this but like i have a hypothesis which is basically okay you have this robust features and non-robust features when you are doing robust training you are just masking block, blocking out the non-robust features of imagenet which are you know like kind of shortcuts that imagenet model on image uh, learns only on, on imagenet like there are tiny things that are specific to imagenet so robust features are probably more transferable like they have those shapes and stuff. So by blocking these kind of like non-robust features and transferring the robust ones and then fine-tuning on the new task, we are just like filling in the gaps, the non-robust features of the new task. That's how I see it, to be honest. Can I ask some dumb mm -hmm. questions real quick? The, yeah. the thing is, I feel like this is, this is quite an advanced conversation and, and I need to dumb it down a little bit. So when, when your lab released the Features Not Bugs paper, it made the quite interesting finding as i understand that the vulnerability here to adversarial examples is a function of the data set itself and it spoke about this dichotomy between robust features and non-robust features <clears throat> and if i understand correctly non-robust features are basically features that generalize quite well but are imperceptible to humans so a robust mm -hmm. fe feature might be a pig snout and a non-robust feature might just be some weird collection of pixels that unfortunately generalizes very well very well indeed so it, it seemed to explain this phenomenon that this, the transferability of um, these features is, is because it's in the data, then that's why it, it affects so many different types of models. Now, the, um, the paper did an experiment, didn't it, to kind of um, let, let's see what happens if we remove the non-robust features from the data set. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just start with that? How the hell did they actually do that? So, so they did two experiments in that paper. I wasn't in the lab when they did that, but I know the paper. So the first experiment basically is that they 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 just try to like you know the first uh, so they did two experiments let me remember them so the first one was uh, just kind of like for for a data set of dogs and cats just like you know find adversary examples for dogs and adversary examples for cats and then you have your set of examples and label them different basically the, the 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 images that are labeled as dogs has the non-robust features of cats. And then the, the images that are labeled as cats has the non-robust features of dogs. So just like you know use relabel these images to be cats where there are non-robust features but the actual image for humans is a dog and dogs where there are non-robust features of dogs but the actual image is a cat and train on those and then you achieve really really high accuracy there so 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 so, so like you still which 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 says that you know those non-robust features but you achieve very high accuracy on the original test set right that that's what's crazy so so you give the model like yes, a, that's a, a data set of a bunch of dogs which are all labeled cat right exactly. but you've perturbed yeah. them to adversarially look to the model like a cat and now that model mm -hmm. trained on this data set will be able to recognize a true cat image from the original test set which which like unequivocally tells you that there's something in these images that it can use to to actually recognize cats yeah exactly so so this first experiment yeah just said that you know those you, you can act, you, you can just generalize from this, these non-robust features. So the other experiment was basically uh, trying to just remove those non-robust features from the data set and train using standard training on this new data set that's robustified. So it has basically no 
uh, non-robust features. And then you achieve, you know, robust accuracy by just like, you know, doing standard training. Fine. Did but I, I suppose um, philosophically, though, what's the difference? But, you know, we've got robust features, which are human perceptible features, and we've mm -hmm. got non-robust features. Does it really matter? Is the first question. And the second question is, is um, we were talking with Francois Cholet last week about the manifold hypothesis. You know, he has this beautiful idea that um, all natural data falls on this interpolatable yeah. manifold. And presumably all of these different types of features fall on different manifolds, do they? Yep. Yeah, no, I, I, actually, I actually quite believe with this kind of like, you know, uh, conjecture or hypothesis. Uh, like, yeah, like, like, I feel like this manifold is basically, I mean, it's, it's easily describable for, by humans, but like not mathematically and rigorously, you know, formulated. Like, describe, like the way we describe this manifold is basically the manifold of images which human actually recognize as, you know, like correct images. And that makes sense, basically. But I feel, you know, those, those images of the cat that are, that have the non-robust features of dogs, these are, you know, I agree with that. Like, they are on a totally different manifold. And as, because as a human, this manifold of, like, human, you know, uh, making sense images. I don't know what you, what you might call that manifold. So, so a human, when he sees or she sees the image of a dog that has non-robust features of the cat, they will say this is a dog. There is no way they will figure out that this is a cat. So I totally agree with this. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how to prove it, but I, I don't. I totally agree with this. I, I feel like you know this is this is this is what's what's going on, and in practice, okay. Like like no one knows exactly like what's like what's like the, even the, the robust features model is just like a model. It's like not like one hundred percent this is the case. Like no one actually knows exactly what's going on. But I like I feel like these non-robust features and non-robust features, you know, separation inspires you to do a lot of like cool stuff, downstream tasks, try to justify what's going on. And, uh, you know, like similar to transfer learning, you, you try to like justify why transfer learning works. Like what's going on? Is, are we transferring the non-robust features or the robust features? And, you know, like like all of these like interplay between like what robust features and non-robust features mean. That you did inside the do adversarial robustness help in transfer learning. I'm sorry if I forgot the exact name of the paper, but uh, in that paper, you showed that if you have better norm separation, I mean, norm separation has some kind of relationship with, you know, fine grained features or coarser grained features and so on. Do you think maybe this might have been the case for non-robust as opposed to uh, robust features? Uh, you mean, uh, but, but what do you, like, you mean uh, the, the size, like the, how robust your, your model is, like the size, like the, basically the size of the, like the yeah. size of the LP ball that you train on? Yeah, maybe the robust features are actually helping into the norm separation. And that's why maybe they are able to distinguish better because this is one of the hypotheses that you have already shown in the paper. So maybe you could, you know, take that route. And we don't like, we don't show anything. Like we don't, we don't like show that this is actually like, we just like, you know, hypothesize. We cannot like, there's, there's no proofs, but it's just like running like, you know, empirical uh, experiments. But, uh, uh, but yeah, like, I think, okay, in the paper, we, we tried to, like, to avoid like having, you know, getting into conclusions, oh, we are transferring the robust features and we are not like, like transferring the non-robust features or something like that, because I don't know if that's exactly the case. Like, but, 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 but intuitively the way I think about, because definitely more work has to be done there to like see like what's exactly going on. But what I can tell you is that really like, okay, the way I think about it is just, we are blocking kind of the non-robust features, which are generalize it's they are good to generalize but like for the same distribution images from the same distribution but they are tough to generalize to images from other distributions that's my intuition to be honest 
So that's why we're trying to block them so that they don't interfere in during fine tuning on the task uh, target. Uh, sorry, yeah, target task basically. We're just like eliminating them. Could you spell it yeah. out to me? Because I still don't completely understand. I, I was so confused about this the first time that Yannick explained it to me because he said there are robust features and non-robust features, but the definition does not seem to include generalization, right? We all accept that generalization in deep learning is a function of interpolation on a manifold, right? Mm -hmm. And non-robust features apparently have the feature that they do generalize. So they do fall on another manifold and there must be some differences between these manifolds if because we're talking about robustness and brittleness and accuracy and there's an interesting interplay between them right so you're saying that the non-robust features maybe they're less learnable maybe the manifold is different maybe the manifold has discontinuities maybe it's less interpolatable but you know are, are you saying that the non-robust features generalize worse than the robust features um i cannot definitely say but i i would say from uh, from this you know transfer learning experiment I believe so, because, you know, like if you keep them and then you transfer, okay, there, there's, there's one experiment that I wanted to, to do, but like I never did. I'll tell you about it. That, 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 can, that might actually answer that exactly. So, so, okay. So the way I think about it is that because we are blocking them, okay, when, I, when, when we don't block these features and transfer, you know, robust and non-robust features, we get like some, some like improvement on like downstream tasks above of transfer training from scratch. But when we block them and keep only the robust features, we get better, better, better performance there. So the actual interesting experiment is to try to transfer just like the non-robust features, just like, you know, create this data set with non-robust features and train a model on that and then transfer that and then create a data set with only the robust features. So a robustified ImageNet data set, which has only robust features and try to transfer that. And then a non-robust ImageNet dataset, which has wrong visually looking images, but like has the non-robust features there, and try to transfer that. And that kind of might actually, you know, like kind of like actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna like let, let's. I mean, let's that comes that. that comes back to <laughs> exactly the, the point that I was making in the fact that what I I think what we call transfer learning is a function of the robust features, like the the, the way we even select the task. So I think the as you amend the paper name that what it should be i think it should be even amended more saying that you know uh robust robust features help for generalization for tasks that a robust featurer as humans considers to be transfer learning or help for sorry help for transfer. Yeah, no. so the, i guess that uh, also a question would be is can we find equally many tasks for which the non-robust features transfer learn, even though we wouldn't consider them transfer learning tasks, or, or the, are they actually, let's say, useless? Um, but yeah, sorry, uh, to, to, Tim's, to Tim's point, maybe, I got asked an interesting question yesterday that might clarify this a little bit. Uh, so someone uh, asked me in, uh, in my PhD exam, actually, um, isn't if, if you think about language and you think about the question, how many legs does a snake have, right? And you type that into Google. For questions like this, Google will often give you an answer and it will be like a number that it finds somewhere, right? And now imagine why that is. That is because these question answering systems, they've been trained on kind of questions with marked answers. Now, you consider... And, and now consider what the model does. The model sees how many, 
So the model is like super duper primed to find some number somewhere because in all the training data set, whenever it was how many, the answer is some number. But now you add snake, which, and so in the training data, it has never seen those two features. It has seen snake, it has seen how many, but never correlated, like never together, right? So now it's sort of, it, 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 it focuses on the one with the stronger signal. But what you've essentially done is you've kind of ripped two features that shouldn't be together, you've put them together. And the same goes sort of for, for these, these images. So never ever in the data set is there a dog shape with like the microstructure of a cat fur, right? Yet that's exactly what you do when you create an adversarial example. You create a picture with a dog shape and a cat's micro fur structure. Now the model, you know, being a CNN, being very, you know, uh, being very acute to the structure, to like little features, it sees that and it's confused, but it goes with the one that gives it a stronger signal, which is what we call the non-robust features. Yet still, all the cats have that. So that, that, that is a good feature, right? But we just put it in very weird constellations. There's an interesting thing there, right? Which is that does non-robust imply low magnitude, right? Because because you, because the interesting thing is that the CNN has this weird entanglement. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could say, well, snakes don't have fur? I've never seen that before. Well, actually, they get entangled <laughs> together, so you can't ask the question. So, like, what, what exactly do you mean by low magnitude? Uh, as so, in um, the pixel mass, you don't need to change the pixel mass much to make that feature fire. But yeah. there is no good way to capture that, like, actually mathematically. So a lot of things have been tried, like, let's say, oh, they're, they're just high frequency features. We'll just do like a low pass filter, right? Like, nah, doesn't doesn't work, yeah. right? Oh, they're... No, they're yeah, no, yeah. That doesn't work, like, yeah. Or like, just like, add, I mean, try to denoise the image or something. No, no, that, this doesn't work, uh, like... It's it's just like you know hidden like think about it as yes I mean they are you know like tiny features and high frequency ones but like hidden like in very very high dimensions like you know you have imagine like you have like a hypercube of like you know many 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 blocks around you and if you are just like adding random noise and like trying to like you know like if you like basically trying to like you know remove the the the, the bombs from around you basically you are just like randomly choosing like a bunch of these boxes. But like you cannot actually, it's very difficult to find the one that actually has this, you know, you know, like small perturbation. It's just like there's exponentially many boxes around you and this like hyper cube. So it's really, really tough. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and like, like the, and like, the, the, sorry, like the, regarding this kind of example, the, the, like the only way like we currently have know how to do like very well is like adversarial training. So trying to like, you know follow what this like attacker did like to place this kind of like example in this cube or randomized smoothing which basically tries to like you know remove everything from around you and all the cubes but this deteriorates your performance because you are just smoothing a lot you are just like you know making your function less exp expressive so i guess it's easy to say that models do latch into high frequency spurious correlations but it's still ill understood as to why that's the case i mean there are some fourier analysis uh, I mean, Fourier perspective on robustness of vision models, but it's still pretty ill understood in my opinion. I guess it's also one of the reasons 
Hendrix and their lab came out with the paper on natural adversarial examples. I mean, examples that are naturally adversarial. What can you do about it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. many reasons they laid out in that paper is one of the reasons is texture biasness and stuff. And the second is that in image classification problems, multiple objects get mapped to discrete individual categories. So this is also one of the reasons. So I don't know yet, but I guess there could be some developments around these areas as to how they correlate to, you know, robustness and similar aspects of a vision model. So I'm looking forward to such developments. Maybe don't know. I can also work on them. <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is like, <laughs> but yeah, there's many, many like things we can try, but yeah, it's tough. It's uh, what I can say, like, that's not the only thing that I can like hundred percent I'm sure about is that it's a tough, tough problem, very tough problem. But yeah, like this, uh, this, this question, sorry, like uh, this question of like non-robust, robust features is always like, you know, in my head when I'm like thinking, it's just like, you know, like what's going on, what's transferring, what's not transferring, uh, how can we use them? Uh, what exactly are these like we have some evidence that you're not they are actually you know like data like they are you know a characteristic of the data but we're not 100% sure of, about that as well still like the robustness uh, the box paper shows that but, like no, no no like no guarantees that this is the case maybe it's something this with something else uh but yeah this this experiment of like figure, figuring out what exactly is transferring by just like training on a robustified image that model and transferring that versus training on a non-robustified image that model and transferring that basically by, by by like flipping the labels and like adding adversary examples is something interesting i feel like i will i will i will do it like to to, to support this and more and being able to answer the question uh better because i I, can, I don't know how to answer it right now and i can speculate but uh with experiments we can actually we can like precisely uh try to like you know get more intuition and answer these questions so i think the question is question of robustness is on one hand you want to let's say become robust to adversarial examples but adversarial examples they are defined in a very specific way if you really want to work with them because they are defined in let's say you know i can't perturb by some like i have to stay within some l infinity ball or some l2 ball around a data point that i have in my in my data set and and that's how we measure kind of closeness because we we know very probably to a human there's nothing in like a, a tiny l infinity ball that looks different however what what we actually want to do is to say look these two things they seem similar to a human right um which is completely different from being close in in l2 space or in l infinity space so there's this it seems like there's this mismatch of you know what's close to a human and what's close in the adversarial example literature so my, my question is do you think the ultimate solution if if we had somehow an accurate model of the human visual system would that help us to battle these adversarial examples or would we still sort of be in the same troubles just with kind of a different distance metric no i do like i think like the key to solve deep learning is figuring out this like close or distance metric that makes sense. Like if we find that, like if we know that why two images, like how to measure two images closeness in like the human sense, we can just like use a KNN or something to just like classify. We're done. That's it. Like you just like, you know, 
Run a KNN on like the all images, one use neighbor. That's it. Like, yeah, easier said than done. But I mean, all of machine learning <laughs> is just a distance function at the end of the day. <laughs> exactly. So, like, like that. Like, if you if you find me this, if you if you find this distance, let's chat on offline and publish the paper and be you know <laughs> legends. But yeah, no, I think this is uh, this is uh, this is. Uh, this is the question of deep learning. In my, in my opinion, the way I think about it, this is the question: like, how what's for 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 computer vision? Also, I don't like work on other like computer vision. I I'm most I'm most motivated by computer vision. Uh, but yeah, like for computer vision, I think the distance like similarity kind of notion is key to like solving many things. The more we try to move away from the distance-based stuff, I guess we might be able to increase the transferability of the you know robust models because there's also an aspect of transferability of this robust models to different kind of attacks right and they do not transfer well we do have evidence about that right until so Faiz's lab came out with a cool technique that is based on LPIPS learned perceptual image patch similarities that that is based on perceptibility of you know different robust features and it does not rely that much on distance based metrics and they do show that they have better transferability across different attacks so I guess this, this is suggestive of the fact that the more we try to move away from different distance-based metrics, the better we might be able to solve the transferability problem across different attacks that are both LP-based and non-LP-based. So, so the, the transferability of what exactly, like of, of adversary Different examples, attacks. Let's say I have trained, sure. trained a yeah. model that is good to defend LP-based attacks, but that again yeah, yeah, fails yeah. on mm -hmm. non-LP attacks. So this is again, this is probably happening because we are relying too much on distance-based metrics. Maybe if we rely more on the, you know, perceptible aspects of these models, maybe we can get away with this. So, but so I mean, yeah, like that would be another notion of distance. But like the current notions yeah. of distance, the, the current mathematical of notions course. of distance are not sufficient because uh, they are. Like we try, we try to like just like you know go in like certain directions or like off of the the image manifold or like you know space of images. Yeah, but uh, it's still like, you know, perceptually similar images, like you can, you, you can, you should, hopefully we should be able to define some, some notion of distance. I guess I wanted to say that the conventional distance based matrix yeah, yeah, yeah. might yeah, yeah, yeah. fail this, but yeah, I Definitely, mean, yeah, yeah. Fez's lab yeah. again proved that perceptibility might, you know, uh, enhance the transferability. So, yep. so while we're on, on the topic of, of, of distances, um, you you also worked quite a bit on on certifiability, uh, right? I don't know what that has to do with distances. It sounded cool in my head. Um, <laughs> so, in can you can you maybe uh, just explain a little bit for people who have never you know come across you know certifying certified robustness and so on what that actually means? Because it seems quite you know daunting to say, look, here is a neural network. It's provably robust. Like. What does that? Mm -hmm. What does that even? Because I I feel it's it's kind of important that we have a notion that you know is understandable here. Yeah, and just to yeah. add on to that question, you you said that you um you you, you made an add-on essentially to let's say Google's vision and and um, the the Microsoft's vision API and so on, uh, doing the um, the randomized smoothing and, and a denoising uh, model, and you didn't even need to change the the base classifier. And I was thinking to myself, well, if it's so easy to do that, why did why haven't they done that already? So what 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 yeah, what does certification mean, and why haven't they already done it? Yeah, no, th these are all uh, great questions. So okay, certification. Okay, so for defending neural networks, there are two things, right? Like we can do like empirical defenses, 
and certified defenses. Certification is like basically like another like certified defenses. Like it's like what we get from certified defenses. So what we do for empirical defenses is that we try to like attack the model and like train on whatever we attack so that we get like empirical robustness. And what that, what that means is that there is no guarantee that you know in for this image we cannot find an attack. So it's just as like our robustness is as good as the best attack in the world. So we there might be some very super strong attack that we haven't evaluated our model on that can break it. So that's the problem with like empirical defenses. You are always like, oh, maybe you know there's some new attack that I don't know about. So for certification and certified defenses, you actually find a proof that around this data point, if you perturb any kind of perturbation around this data point within like some you know in a neighborhood of this data point, whether it was like an LP ball or like you know some other neighborhood mathematically described you will never be able to like flip the prediction of the model. And the way, there are many ways to do that. Some people do like LP relaxations. So you just like pass in a box around the data point through the neural network. And then you look at like kind of like the polytope of like that you get in the output of the neural network. And you check if that polytope kind of intersects with the, with the, with the, with the, with like, with kind of like the decision boundaries of your, of your output basically. If, if, if it intersects, then you, you are not certified. If it doesn't intersect, then you have certificate. So you try to see like how much you can increase this uh, ball in the input space so that you uh, get a polytope, basically like a random, like a, like a very complicated shape uh, in the output, which is non which, which is probably non-convex. Or oh, no, no, actually it's, it's convex because that's what people actually do. Like they do convex relaxations so that it's convex. And then you try to like see how much you can increase the, the ball in the input space so that you, that polytope doesn't intersect basically so just so i understand so you're you're dealing with an input space let's say 100,000 dimensions mm -hmm. and inside there there's some natural image manifold maybe but you know yeah. and how could you possibly cover all of that experience space and you, you, do any kind of analysis about you know boxes yeah, no, around example so 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 you literally uh have like a hypercube let's say al infinity okay let's just think al infinity you have a hypercube basically around that data point so you pass every kind of like uh like like let's let's like let's think in 2d you have a square around this data point and you want to pass this square you know you you basically pass the boundaries of it and you see where those boundaries transfer because it's like a convex mapping the boundaries transfer basically to like you know boundaries basically in the output space and you will get like a convex shape that's mo that's morphed so that's how basically you like you 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 achieve that you can cover everything you ju you're just papi passing literally trying to like see how the shape deforms until you reach the output so space. So the, the problem comes in from the non-linearities, right? So if, if we're just, mm -hmm. so that it's easy to pass a square through the linear layer, right? It, it will become maybe a square, maybe, you know, like a, a, some kind of deformed square, Poly something yeah. like this. It will still be convex. And, and the good part about this is that you can pass it through the next layer again. And all you have to do is you can consider the boundaries of the shape because everything else is inside. So everything that was inside before will still be inside after. When you have the non-linearities, right? Exactly. That's when you get the weird shapes. So you can no longer say that anything that's kind of in between two corners is also going to be uh, inside the shape, right? So exactly. what people do is they, they pass it through the linear layer, right? They have that shape. Then they pass it through the non-linearities and then they ask themselves, okay, what's kind of the worst case that can happen? 
and then exactly. they make a, a convex shape around the new thing and that's where the the looseness of most of these bounds come in right so that's what you said at the very beginning if you just do this layer by layer you the, these bounds they get so loose that you know the the amount of space you can certify you know where you can say around this image you can't find any adversarial example it becomes like tiny um so i feel that exactly this, yeah exactly. this literature like is perfect is perfect not really there yet but you know with with things like these randomized smoothings and so on i think we make a lot of progress but again, I'm, I'm asking the dumb questions here. So I, I understand that for a given example in experience space, you put it through the model. And as Yannick was saying, because of the non-linearities, what, what we want to happen is that on the other side of the neural network, it will still be a convex, um, continuous mapping, right? So your square on the input has been transformed into some beautiful little region on your manifold. And, and you can see within that region whether you are transgressing any of the decision boundaries but my my question was that's just one example in this hundred thousand dimensional space so what are you going to do you're just going to like randomly sample oh like it's similar to like how how we evaluate like our models like like this 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 kind of like question transfer like goes to like okay if you train a model on this data set and you test it on your test set you get some like notion of accuracy but you didn't test on every single example in the world you just like test on like some held out set to see like how well roughly you know your, your model will work exactly the same for certified defenses you just like bring a test set and test basically you know around each of these points how much you can go larger and larger and then you get a notion of like how well your model is doing ah. but like the problems that transfer from evaluating image that like machine learning models transfer to this in kind of like setting it's just like you are getting a sense of like how robust it is you cannot guarantee that it's robust it's like you are getting like local robustness around each data point and you evaluate it on like you know a, a data set, and you 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 essentially take like kind of like the minimum uh, ball, and basically say, oh, within this ball, there's or like you check, okay, you, you you fix the ball and you check how many of these examples were certified of your data set. You yeah. so you say within this ball, sixty percent, seventy percent, eighty percent of my test set examples were certified. That that make that makes sense, but I think the the reason why Microsoft then haven't certified their vision classifier is the certification yeah. tells you more about the test set you use than the actual model. So let's say a whole bunch of my test images exactly. they yeah. they might be projected onto a manifold, and inside that manifold it's actually very interpolatable and very smooth and has quite good generalization capability, and there is no yeah. transgression on the decision boundaries. Whereas um, you know, let's say twenty percent of that data actually went onto some other, not even a manifold, maybe those. Those examples were very difficult to classify so they were just memorized by by the model but you wouldn't be able to do that across the board yeah that that i mean that that is one explanation why they didn't do it but like i mean the main reason is that it doesn't yet like we get like deterioration in standard accuracy like randomized modeling is not like you know a working certified defense that we can just deploy right now it's not like at that stage at some point hopefully it will be i don't know Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. But at current, like currently, like why do like why I did you know like why why I tried you know certifying these like Google's API etc. Like Microsoft's uh, Azure's uh, sorry like AWS etc. They didn't do it because they don't want to deploy a model that is robust slightly, you know, but loses accuracy. Like at this point, because attackers can just like attack. Like they will if if someone wants to attack you, they will be able to attack you. So you you better yeah. deploy the best model that you can deploy. 
like the best performance on the average case. I'm like not worried about the worst case at this moment of time because the worst case, unless unless you have like a model that's robust and doesn't deteriorate your standard performance, yeah. which is which is coming very very soon in in a paper that I that I that I publish soon on adversarial patches. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully I don't find a bug from now to then. But, but it's it's looking really really good and it's certified. That's why I am confident. It's certified, so I'm not worried that uh, Nicholas Carolini will come and like butcher. butcher He's still gonna defense. do it oh, because it's he, he will still do it. Because I want I wanted to he, come back to he has he has to fight with mathematics if he wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to come back to Carlini and and Tremer et al that we spoke to last time. So because they, they they were being incredibly downbeat about this. We had a good chat with them, and I just felt demoralized yeah, afterwards. Yeah. My God, um, you know, because Carlini <laughs> has systematically dismantled every single uh, adversarial. Yeah. Um, uh, attack going and you know they they also agreed with you they said well it's not worth losing 10 percent accuracy for a bit more robustness and his his argument yeah, yeah, was yeah. that there's an infinitude of you know more adversarial attacks anyway so it seems like a slightly pointless exercise but but they said you know the main defense mechanisms were data augmentation or adding more data although the more data you add the more adversarial examples you have and um adversarial yeah. training i wanted to get your take on this but also randomized smoothing that they, they, they agreed that that was a successful mechanism but mm-hmm. their general kind of take though was that we're on the road to nowhere we, we are just completely screwed when it comes to adversarial example um yeah like i kind of i kind of agree with that i mean i agree with that like it's it's so tough it's so tough that like like our best like model achieves i don't know 60 percent 60 percent on cfr 10 like in some like lp lp ball so like even if even if we achieve like i don't know like 90 percent or something like if someone wants to attack it, like they have just like to know to tr- repeat the attack like ten times or like whatever, so that they break it, or like you know, like they they have to repeat it at some like some some number of times to break the model. Unless it's like it's like you know, hundred percent certifiable defense, and then they won't be able to break it. But uh, but I think like like I think the key the key point is figuring out how like how to like make models do things similar to humans. Like that's key. That's like like like. I don't like, I mean, I work on like robustness and defenses and stuff, but like, I also like try to like think like what, what does these representations mean? Like, how can we make our models like do things similar to humans? Like have the priors that humans have. Like we don't, like we will not be able to fool with like being fooled with like those perturbations. There are some other stuff that fools us, of course, fool us, of course, you know, like, uh, um, like illusions and stuff. Yes. Which is great. I mean, I'm happy if a car gets like, f- f- uh, uh, fooled by an illusion not by like you know a tiny marker on a stop sign or like by n- random corruption even like that's even like a worse problem at this point like it's random corruption like in snow weather distribution shift that's a serious problem which my other paper actually kind of targets like you know the another serial examples paper tries to tackle basically you know robustness to like changing the game basically to, to achieve robustness on like common corruptions which is actually you know a more like direct problem that we have right now it's like a problem of distribution shift, which is more severe, in my opinion, at this moment of time. Like, we have to solve that before. So, I mean, it's good if we solve that, for example. That's good. That's good. But, like, I think this is like a more prominent problem at this, mo- at this moment. Like, we have to solve that. Even if, because, okay, in the best, in the ideal world, there will not be 
uh, adversaries, but they will be yeah. there will be like random noise and corruptions in the ideal world. So that's they will happen eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. On, on that though, I think the distribution shift. A lot of this comes back to generalization, right? You, you said we we need better priors. I, I like Cholet's conception that we need to have human priors in, in our models, and most yeah. of the priors we have in our models at the moment actually um, are to improve the information conversion ratio, right? That there's mm-hmm. this realization that uh, most of the information out there in the universe is just it's like the kaleidoscope effect, as Cholet says. It's just it's a very small amount of information which is represented in lots of different ways. So we need to improve yep. the efficiency um, in in doing so. But I, I wanted to come back quickly to because um, you know we've been talking about um, the the randomized smoothing and and the noise models and stuff. But but the, your your main contribution recently actually was this incredible concept of unadversarial examples and we haven't really properly spoken about this but it's, it's this idea that you can have a patch or even a texture you did a version in, in 3d yeah. where if you if you create the right kind of patch you can actually reinforce the model making the correct prediction even under a variety of different background conditions and noise and so on so can, can you just go go through really clearly what that process is yeah yeah so this is the most exciting work recently, I like. I, I, I'm still super. Like every time I like, you know, see it and like, you know, thinking about it, I get, I just get super excited. It's just like, you know, it's a very simple idea, like super simple. Okay, we have those adversarial examples or adversarial perturbations that you know easily break our models. So we are able to add like small non-robust features, which the which our models love, right? Like they just, whenever they see these non-robust features, oh, I love them. I'll, I'll go there. I'll, I'll, I'll see what they are saying. I'll, I'll do it. It's super robust to the rotations, the transformations, to everything. Like whatever, like whenever they see it, like even if there's like so much like other information, like non-robust, like there, there's like a, the, the, the image of the dog, but like small noise or like features of a cat. Oh, this is a cat, amazing. So I was like, holy shit, like why don't we just like, that's how the models perceive our models currently. That's how they perceive. We don't like it. We don't, we want them to perceive like us, but they're currently, that's how they perceive the world. So why don't we design the world for them in that way? So I was like, why don't we just like bring those features? Okay, you like this feature? This is, this is, this is the feature of a cup. You know, it doesn't make sense for us, for humans. That's fine. It makes sense for neural networks. Let's use it. So what, what we basically did is that we just like brought, like created those non-robust features, but for the right class. So in a simple setting, you know, we just bring an object. So, so this thing doesn't, like, like we basically try to like color or like, paste some patch or like redesign or color an object of interest so that whenever the neural network sees it, it sees like those non-robust features of this object along with robust features, of course. But in addition, like we kind of amplify the non-robust features. So like in your example that you like, like the cat with a fur, we just make the fur more furry, like, I don't know, like more furrier for a neural network, right? So whenever they see the neural network sees this, oh, this is a cup for sure. Even if there, if there is some other like you know noise or distribution shift or transformation, it actually works. So the key there was also like trying to testing this under like all sorts of corruptions, not that only test time corruptions, like all sorts of like the corruptions that ImageNet C has, and it works really well. It's like those non uh, like non robust features actually like are really salient even under like the worst non kind of like cor- common corruption, which which like whenever we paste them on our objects, we see the objects even under like weird distribution shifts. The easy way to do this would be to say, okay, well, um, here's a cat. I'm going to put an unadversarial patch on the cat, which has the non-robust features of a cat. Clearly, that would be cheating, wouldn't it? Because I'm not supposed to know what the picture is before I put the patch this on. Is, so so no, have you kind is, of like mixed yeah. them together? 
No, this is a great point. Like the, the, the key, the key, okay. The key of this paper is that it, it's not like, it's like changing the game for a specific scenario, for specific scenarios in the world. Like, of course, this is not going to work if you want to like go train a model and go outside and like detect dogs and cats. It's not going to work because we are not controlling the dogs and cats. But in many, many scenarios, we have like the system designer or like, you know, the human has control not only on the model, but only also on the objects of interest that they are trying to recognize, detect, track. So like the way I actually came up with this is like I was working with Microsoft with some researcher on like some like project with like on helicopters and stuff like with some company. And we're like, how can we robustify landing or something like, yeah, how, can we, how can we like apply knowledge like to, to make landing of like helicopters or like drones safer or like more robust under severe weather conditions? I was like thinking, we're discussing, Alexander Madri was there as well, you know, along with like Ashish Kapoor from Microsoft and Sai, Van Prala as well. And we were thinking and I was like, holy shit, like, why don't we just like redesign this? Like, why do we design this landing pad like that? Why don't we redesign it in a way that new networks love to see? And there was the, the actually idea came from there. Like why? Like for for such for such for such a scenario, we 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 have uh, control of what models, what perception model we want to deploy on the helicopter, for example. But also we have control of the object of interest. This applies also for like stop signs for autonomous vehicles. We designed the stop sign, right? We designed it like that because the humans recognize it like that. Why don't we have another stop sign, for example, for for you know next to it? for autonomous drive, uh, like autonomous vehicles. Or like in a warehouse, you know, or, or in a kitchen. Let's say in a kitchen, you have like a robot that's doing the dishes and stuff. Why do you want to color the dish like that? Why don't you color it in a way so that like it's much more robustly classified and recognized and detected by the model? And the idea is very simple. It's just like, you know, doing adversarial attack, targeted adversarial attack, but towards the correct class. Like it's actually just literally, literally reversing the story. Just like, just instead of training the model, Train the object, train the input. So backpropagate and update the texture in the input space, like the 3D texture. So we use like you know some like non uh, sorry differentiable render and stuff to do that. So 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 like the demonstration that, that I have on like ImageNet and like 2D images is just like you know a proof of concept and like a systematic way to analyze those patches. But like ideally you will actually create 3D models or like 2D patches and print them and paste them on objects. You're not gonna like modify 2D images because that's cheating. So of course. To, to clarify a bit more, there used to be this demonstration, which I found pretty cool when I got into kind of uh, computer science of an engineering professor here at, at ETH, of uh, Raft Andrea. And he had these drones, and I think it was a TED talk. And these drones, they could do like amazing things with like balls that he threw up in the air, right? Yeah. And the point of the story was there are like cameras in the room that track the drones and the ball. And... They, they were made specifically like bright red and round because, right, we can build cool computer vision detectors like a Huff transform and the color is really mm -hmm. distinct. So we can like pinpoint where that is. So in a way, that's what we did before. We designed objects that these cameras <coughs> and our systems can track really well. But now we, we can do it even better because we have backpropagation. So we don't, we don't have to think like, yeah, exactly. okay, what do our systems like? We can just ask them. And then, right, they can... Exactly. So my question is, um, you know, given that you can do this with a network, you can take a network and you can see what does the network love? And you can put that somewhere and it will be recognized very robustly. Do you also modify the network itself? Because you could think of this as like a two-player game, right? Where you create mm -hmm. yeah. a patch network combo that is just like so and that will be i think exactly. mainly a function of the of the and corruptions jointly. right like 
the, that's com like the complete system will be determined by what corruptions you want to be robust to. So you kind of build a network patch combo that, that just loves each other. Like, is that? No, this is a, yeah, this is a great point. Like this is actually a setting which we did not discuss in our paper, but it's like, you know, a direct setting, which is basically joint training of your model yeah. and your patch. We did it. It actually achieved similar results, but like because it's not like as clean, we just like avoid like talking about it and let it left it for like you know uh, future work. So what we did is just that like, we fixed the pre-trained yeah. model. So just like bring any pre-trained model, fix it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even if it's a randomly initialized model, like, like the crazy thing if bring a randomly initialized model and just like optimize the patch with respect to this model. So minimize the loss. So usually we minimize the loss with respect to the parameters of this model. So don't do that. Just like minimize the loss with respect to other set of parameters, which is basically the texture. So optimize your input or your objects of interest. So it, wor it works really well, like even on, on a randomly initialized model. So like think there's a randomly initialized model, you deploy it. Like this might be, you know, uh, something like, like it's just like random, totally random. Maybe, maybe there, there, it has applications in privacy or something. I don't know. Like if you don't want your, your model to be hacked or something, it's random. And then you design your objects of interest. So the model is like for anyone who see it or try to hack it or something, it's random. Like it's not going to do anything. But like whenever it sees the object of interest, it's just like going to get super excited and it will detect it. So we just focused on pre-trained models, but totally you like, yeah. it's like you can achieve even better results by like jointly training them. Like you can achieve as good as results if you jointly train, train them because it's, it's just going to improve your model. So maybe like you alternate, like minimize the inputs, the parameters, then it'll minimize the parameters of the input. Like you can alternate or like do crazy stuff. But, but, but totally, like you, you touched the exact point, like we design objects because we think, oh, like red color and shiny color might be you know, interesting for this system. It might be better for this model. But doing it in a data-driven way, like is definitely better. Like, like you just like collect data and do it, like it's just like making your life easier. We tried baselines of random colors and, you know, like something that makes sense for humans. It doesn't work as well as, you know, uh, like I have some, some example in the paper, like doesn't work as well as, you know, designing it in a data-driven way. So literally, it's just like applying, you know, a data-driven way to design objects for neural networks. Like that's, that's what excites me. Like it's for neural networks, like from the perspective of neural networks, we are redesigning the world. I don't know. I mean, this I get has probably much wider ranging applications. So, I mean, first of all, the, the probably the jointly trained thing would probably be extremely vulnerable to adversarial attacks. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that kind of blocks those things from being deployed. But um, I think the applications of this are much more wide ranging because this comes very close to, for example, data augmentation and data driven data augmentation, like to, to, to really understand what kind of things the neural networks like will probably also make you mm -hmm. then able to design data augmentation algorithms for classifiers when you can say, okay, what does this network really love? And, you know, probably, you know, we should, we should augment our data in such a way either to reinforce or to, to completely go counter to that, depending on what we see in the data, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, no, I, is, I mean, yeah. Could, could I ahead. ask a couple of clarifying questions? Because I, I, I still mm -hmm. don't feel I completely understand this. So mm -hmm. I, it's a wonderful concept. The way we design uh, stop signs, right, on the side of the road, they're big and red and red, you know, we, we our brain lights up. So they light up like a Christmas tree for us. I understand the concept. It's similar to like a helipad or a runway. We make it light up like yeah. a Christmas tree so we can reinforce it. So, so I understand correctly. 
this is very similar to the work you know when they could make a, a turtle look like a rifle in 3d oh, or yeah. you could put an adversarial patch on a human being and and an existing vision model would think it was something else so <laughs> this is very much for the regime where you actually know what you want it to classify right so i'm going to make a patch which will look as much like an airplane as possible so you are so it's not it's not for any class it's for a particular class and yep. then I'm going to stick that patch on an image because then it exactly. makes me think, well, so you're taking a non-robust feature and you're increasing the magnitude of it because normally it's quite low magnitude. But, exactly. you know, I bet that, that works quite well for the setting where you have a pre-trained model. But why don't you just throw the whole thing out and start again? You know, wh wh why even use a pre-trained model? Why, why don't you come up with the equivalent of a QR code and not even use the, the original uh, model at all? Why don't you just change the whole pipeline? So like the, the other option is just like train the model jointly with the patch. I mean, you either train the model, which is what we do, you know, you just bring some some models and you train some, some objects and like data set and you train on them. So that's what usually we do, right? Like people do. The other thing is just fix the model and train the, the patch or like the input or like the object of interest, just design and structure. And the third option is like train them jointly, which is possible. Yeah, we like it's possible. I'm saying and it's it, it it's like. It achieves. It will achieve as good as like you know just training the patch because you can start from a random, not from a random initialized model. You can start from a pre-trained model or any model you want and just like try to like improve that more and more. You are basically minimizing the loss, your objective function, instead of just like with respect to the model, also with respect to the other set of parameters, which is also like the patches. And like a cr crucial thing with the parameters of the patch or the, or the texture. The crucial thing here is that uh, I don't know. Someone mentioned that like. Uh, that like we have to like Im include like corruptions in the training pipeline. Like, like, like the nice thing is that we don't actually do that. Like because we cannot like model all kind of like corruptions in the world. We just it, like the nice thing about this method is like we it doesn't it didn't see any corruption, any random corruption, any noise, any any like uh, snow or anything during training time. But at test time, it generalizes really well to them whenever it sees those salient features. Like that's the cool thing. And we specific, of course, we can like probably pipe in like common corruption, uh, add more corruption during training, which will make it even more and more robust. But we wanted to show that it hasn't seen any corruption because in the world, it's it might actually come with like uh, sorry, like see corruptions that it haven't seen before. So we wanted to demonstrate that it actually generalizes really well. But totally, if you if you if you know the model, the corruptions that it's gonna like data augmentation will help it even more and more. So you will have a, like instead of doing expectation over like rotations and like transformations of the of the patch, you can actually do expectation over also like corruptions as well. So you can train the patch with expectation over corruptions over over everything that you know over corruptions over transformations over over data points, over everything basically, uh, and minimize the loss expect, expect value of the loss. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's really it's 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 really really general. But yeah, you totally can train both the models and the patch. But we didn't like invest uh, invest a lot in that. Yeah, go ahead, Sayak. What's up? I think in in this regard, a paper that really shows some positive direction is the self training with noisy student training paper, uh, where uh, the student is actually made made to you know learn an ensemble. Uh, of a harder teacher model. So you have clean set of images, you pass it to some well-trained teacher model, you take those predictions as the ground truth levels for the student model. And while passing the images to the student model, you heavily augment it with transformations like brand augment. And you ask it to be consistent with both these different versions of images. So that way you enforce some, you know, some sense of consistency. And at the same time, the teacher has higher capacity. 
than the student while you are training it so and that has many nice properties such as improved robustness to common corruptions and also some level of adversarial robustness to adversarial perturbations in particular l2 uh, attacks so they did not you know do anything provably but they did show empirically this works this yields better robustness to certain adversarial perturbation so i think having some sense of consistency regularization might be also helpful along with stronger data augmentation policies so yeah, yeah. you can you can you can you can do all sorts of stuff like anything that you can you do for your model you can just now do it for your input like any any like sort of like data augmentation or like you know tricks you do to optimize your model better you think about it you have another kind of like set of parameters you're optimizing which you can see <laughs> That's that's the only thing. Like you cannot see actually like the parameters of the model, but you can see the parameters of the mo of the of the object that you're optimizing. Yeah, it's I like think the color. The it texture. is also very coherent with human perception to some extent because inherently we are training our model that that okay, this is my image, and if I am being a little bit darker inside some dark light, then it should be my image as well, right? I'm inherent inherently training my mind to believe that sort of stuff. It's but essentially now, it's essentially like telling you telling me like oh, if I see uh, like. Uh, I don't know, like it's just it's just like telling like adding adding more more information to the model. Like it's it's as if like my I don't know, like some my, my friend telling me, oh, if you see me, like I will always wear yellow. Okay? So just like whenever I see yellow, like I have more confidence that this like, if I see him from far away, there's more confidence I'm more confident that this is this guy because he I have a little bit more information that this, you know, this is this guy because he had this information that I will always, you know wear yellow. In addition to the his feature expressions and stuff, I will that that will be persistent. Like there, yeah. I would have more information that he passed to me when he told me, like, I will always, like, you know... That is exactly what just like coloring training yeah. sort of tries to do. So that is the beauty of that method, I guess. And I yeah. also wanted to ask another point is, with randomized smoothing, I guess, this is one of the cases where a network, a network sense of perception is not that much inherent, I mean, coherent with how we perceive things, right? Because uh, you, I mean, uh, sorry, that was not randomized smoothing. That has to be with unadversarial objects. Because you were mentioning that we are trying to, you know, maximize the uh, perception capability for a neural network, but that might mm -hmm. not be again coherent with how we perceive things. Don't you think this is another case where uh, both the perceptual capabilities sort of very different while we are trying to constrain our models to be as coherent with how perceive how we perceive things i mean it, it really depends like on the situation on the task like some tasks we don't interact with them at all only robots interact with them like hopefully at some point like robots only will do dishes or like you know will uh, wipe the house or something you know like we will not care how how, how things are you know designed uh, and maybe at some point you know even stop signs we will not be driving at all i don't know maybe this will have this, this this will come so we don't care about how the stop sign is designed but if there are tasks that you know humans and robots are you know uh doing it to get simultaneously we can even we, we can either leave it as is because a human like know how to detect uh, shapes much much better than networks and networks care about the textures so maybe like let's just like you know give textures to raw to machines and shapes to humans or like you know regularize like add some regularizations on how we paint the object so we can add you know we can like now it's like all sort of like kind of like looks noisy and like you know similar to adver adversary examples you know very noisy very hurting to the eye maybe we can optimize in like you know some color space or something you, you can like you know optimize not in the pixel space you can like add some like function and optimize that function 
you know, to like optimize the model. So you can literally totally optimize what color should be. Not like oh, what each pixel should be, what the total color should be. You can optimize that. You can like add regular, you can do literally whatever you want. It goes into the right. direction of these people yeah, who so, train like GANs to produce adversarial examples, right? So, you know, like you have like a GAN that produces images and then you yeah. find something in its latent space and it, it goes in, yeah. Yeah, if, yeah. I think if you want a yeah. good example for unadversarial examples for humans, it's branding. So, like, you know, you could, you could, uh, you could teach a human to make the association of like expensive, nice shoes that last for a while and make me good at sports. Or you could just put like a little check mark on it, right? And like the human, like it's, it's like the, this direct hack into the human brain, it, which, is, which is branding. And that's exactly what, what these unadversarial examples yeah. do for the neural networks, right? It's like, you can either learn this whole complicated stuff or I'm just gonna you know, slap this piece of thing on here and I... I make your you associate that with the correct class. No, yeah, this is this is a great great example. The zone great glasses. motivation. Yeah. This is <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, on that note, I'm gonna wrap things up. But um uh Heidi Salmon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute honor and uh yeah, it, it was it was really, really cool having you on. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's been a, it's a, it's a pleasure, and I really enjoyed the the show. And uh, yeah, really nice work. And you know, you do a lot of hard work. Like you know, there's like I don't know, a show every two weeks. Like it takes a lot of time to prepare. I totally can imagine that. So like, it's really impressive. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, let's let's just see like where this channel goes and like how much we can advance AI as well. But yeah, this, you're doing a great job, guys. Like happy to be here. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much. It, it was actually every thanks. one week, but yeah, I think just. Every, yeah, oh, I we, see. We've Plus, recently okay. gone down to every two weeks because, as, as you can imagine, it's quite a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <cool. Right. laughs> I can imagine.